Hey everyone, welcome back to Ice Cream with Investors. I'm your host, Matt Four, and today we are launching a special episode. This week, I'm actually doing something I haven't done in a very long time, which is travel internationally to take a vacation. As most of you probably know, traveling is one of my passions and traveling internationally is a great opportunity for me to grow as an individual. It's a good chance to meet new people, experience new cultures, and most importantly, have great food that I haven't had before. And in this episode, you'll get an opportunity to learn a little bit more about my story and also hear my four principles for living a more intentional life. I hope you enjoy this show. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. Our guest today was financially free by the age of 32. He lays out four steps for achieving anything. He's a triathlete. He's a successful passive investor. He's going to lay out many steps around passive investing as well, that whether you are active or passive in this business, you're going to want to listen up. His name is Matt Four. He's a part-time real estate investor. He's based out in Nashville, Tennessee. In his professional life, he has spent over a decade in sales and sales leadership positions at one of the largest technology companies in the world. By investing in real estate, he was able to achieve financial freedom by the age of 32. When he's not working, he enjoys reading, training for Ironman triathlons, and convincing his brother that he's the favorite twin. Matt is a uh, exceptional young man. I love the self-discipline and the structure that he's put in place to go after it and make big things happen. He's going to talk about the daily consistent things that are so important to achieving success. I know you're going to learn a lot today and be encouraged by Matt's story. Matt, welcome to the show. I've enjoyed getting to read a little bit about you and man, financial freedom by the age of 32. There's not too many people that accomplish that. And so congratulations, first and foremost. And I think that speaks a lot to numerous things that I'd like to talk about today on the show. But man, self-discipline and other things that help something like that be accomplished. So tell the listeners a little about yourself, Matt. I want to know a little about the background because I think that just speaks to your success financially, you know, as an entrepreneur and those things as well. Absolutely. So first of all, thank you for having me on the show. Longtime listener, first time caller. It's great to finally be on the show. So a little bit about my background is I'm a W-2 employee today. I've spent 15 years at some of the leading sales technology companies in the world. And it's really helped me kind of understand the value of sales and the value of going out there and making your dollar work harder for you than, than you do for it. How I got started into real estate, though, was I was working at a previous company back in 2016. And Whitney, we had a huge deal that we had closed. And my eyes were wide open on the commission check that I was going to get. And I'm not going to say the number here or publicly, but I remember that I was starting to ask around, like, how should I go invest this money? And I heard everything from crypto to annuities to stocks to bonds. And then I had a mentor at the time mention real estate. And it checked every bucket that I want. It was cash flow and appreciation, gave me some kind of tax benefits, et cetera. And then I got the faithful call the week of Christmas that year that said, hey, I'm not going to get that check. And it's not the company I work for today. But I remember asking my VP at the time, like, why is this? Where, how did we come to this? And he said, Matt, how much have you made this year? And then I told him and he said, well, isn't that enough? 
And I knew at that moment, if I wanted to achieve the goals that I wanted in my life to give back abundantly to the causes I cared about, that I was going to have to take control of my financial freedom. So started my real estate journey back in 2017, went deep into this rabbit hole, and the rest, they say, is history. Wow. Incredible. You know, a couple of things you mentioned there, you know, I had this commission check you were just like counting on, right? It unfortunately didn't happen. But you mentioned that you had a mentor there that helped you to think about maybe investing that. Speak to, you know, you were what in your... 20s then, roughly, mid-20s? Yep, early 20s, yep. Speak to having a mentor then. How, how did you know then that you should have a mentor? And and what was it? Was this like personal mentor or business? What was that for? Yeah, it was actually a business mentor who has become a very close personal friend over the past couple of years. And really, it just happened out of consequences. I think the best mentors you find in life are adding value to other people along your journey and just finding a connection and clicking with them. If I came up to you today and said, hey, Whitney, can I be one of your mentees? How do I add value to you? Chances are that relationship wouldn't blossom and bloom. But if you just naturally connect with people, find out what they're interested in, find out the values that they're trying to achieve or the goals that they're trying to achieve and add value along the way, then that relationship will spawn. So he was actually one of my first leaders at a technology sales company who was doing kind of real estate on the side, selling and investing and learned a ton from him from sales to personal development to also investing. Speak to achieving financial freedom so young. You know, yeah. Give us a, a little bit of a roadmap there, how you did that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll put a big star on it. Financial freedom to me meant that I could pay for my bills. I would always have a roof over my head and I would always have food over the table. It did not mean that I would be traveling to Air Dubai, first class, and staying at a five-star hotel. So just to caveat that. But what I really tried to do, Whitney, is be very intentional with where I was. And I figured out or found through this process that solving the money problem helps you be more intentional with the people that you love, with the activities that you care about, with the passions that you have. And I know we talked about a little bit about my sister, but through this journey, my sister passed early on in this journey. And it was a tragic event for our family before the age of 40, she had passed. And it really just put into perspective that you've given one life, you only have so much limited time on this earth. And the matter of an instant, you could go to bed and never wake up again, that I really wanted to be more intentional with my life. And so I started down the financial freedom path. And I can tell you, not having to worry about a roof over your head or food on your table allows you to be more intentional with your life. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a great mission and cause. And man, something like that happening, losing someone close to you, definitely open your eyes to what you're focused on, right? 100%. Wow. So I appreciate you being so transparent, sharing that. And so I want to back up a little bit. None of this happens by accident, right? You know, becoming financially free, you know, at such a young age and even having, you know, seeking out mentors, things like that. Speak to how you were taught to think this way. And maybe, you know, I don't know if you've ever been asked that before, but I, I love thinking about these things because I have two young boys and a daughter that's much younger. But, you know, I love like thinking through how I teach them, you know, entrepreneurial thinking, right? And grooming them kind of for, they don't have to be an entrepreneur, but man, I want to at least teach them to have the self-control and the discipline, no matter if they're a W-2 or not, I want them to be able to do it the best they can and have that drive. But how were you taught to think that way and, and to do this? I'm going to go off the cuff here and I'm going to give you a long-winded answer. So a little bit about my history. My mom got her PhD and taught at Virginia Tech. I know that's near and dear to your heart being there close to Blacksburg. And my dad was an entrepreneur. So I kind of had the best of both worlds, right? I got to see the ups and downs of being an entrepreneur. And then I got to see the stability side of being a teacher and pursuing higher education and things like that. I, however, 
grew up with dyslexia. So the reason I don't have all my books back here, but in my bedroom, I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books because for me, overcoming that obstacle is like a little trophy. I never throw away a book, but I was not always that way. When I was a kid, my mom used to always beat into me. You got to remember, Matt, to think about the long term, think about the long term, think about the long term. And even though the long term for me meant, you know, how do I get through school and to the, the football field or the baseball field or whatever sport activity I was doing at the time, it just instilled with me that thought. And then ultimately, I started started growing, started maturing. And after college, I really got into Ironman triathlons. And so Ironman triathlons for maybe some of your listeners that don't know what they are, they're 2.4 mile swims, 112 mile bikes, 26.2 mile runs. Yes, it's all in a single day. Yes, it's all in a single event. And I think through that process, what I really learned was how to set a long-term goal. And what I love about that process is that no one is born to do that. They have to naturally every day wake up and do little consistent actions every day to build them there. Take that as comparison against someone like LeBron James. And I'm not a LeBron hater, but LeBron James was 6'8", 215 pounds of solid muscle that could jump out of the gym. That dude was born to be an athlete one way or another. And so when I started having success in Ironmans, I really started seeing the value of putting in these little daily workouts that could lead to a bigger goal. And that's kind of how I came up with like four steps to achieve anything, which is clarity, consistency, efficiency, and compounding. So I'll stop there, but that's my long-winded answer of how I kind of got that way. I love that. Four steps to achieve anything. That's incredible. I love how you can even go back to, you know, your mom encouraging you to think long-term. It's incredible. I'll share quickly. There's a study anybody can look up, you know, it's like where they what tempted numerous children, you know, in a, in a room, right. With, with the candy. It's like, if, if you can just wait, right. I'm going to give you so much more over here ultimately, right. If you can just wait. And then, you know, it's like tracking these children over time and the ones that were willing to wait were typically much more successful, you know, as the world would see it. So, but no, that's, that's incredible. I appreciate your transparency around that as well. But speak to, you know, the triathlete, becoming a triathlete, you know, and how that's helped you to become a better investor. Yeah, I think really it goes back to those four steps, right? So when I decided to do an Ironman triathlon, I didn't own a bike. I wasn't a cross-country runner or a track runner in college or high school or a professional swimmer like some of these guys were. I just knew that that just seemed so unachievable and so daring and so audacious that I wanted to go try to achieve that. And so the first step when that was really becoming clear on what I wanted. I think that Whitney, people in life think that there's two sides of every answer. There's a right and a left, a yes and a no, a one and a two. And really, if you're not clear on where you're going to go, one decision will lead down a different route, which will open up different options. So I think first and foremost, whether you're investing or you want something in your life, you need to be super clear on what it is you want and then start working backwards from there. And then the most important part of those four steps is the consistent part. And when I talk about consistency, I want to give everybody out there some grace. It's not that you do the right thing every day. It's that you do something every day that marches you towards that goal. It's only when you get to that next phase of efficiency where you start figuring out, okay, what actions are getting me towards my goal the fastest and what actions can I do more efficient? So I guess long way to way of saying, being super clear on what you want, creating those small sub five minute tasks that allow you to be consistent with your efforts towards that goal, and then start being efficient. 
Incredible. Yeah, four steps to achieve anything. I love that it's, man, you got to get clear on where you want to go. You talked about working backwards and then it's consistent, being consistent, consistency. And that makes me think of obviously our podcast. You know, it's definitely not, not every interview has been amazing. I'll be the first one to say that. But man, you know, we're just extremely consistent over a long period of time. And I feel like that eases the burden of that a little bit too, to think about, you don't have to do the right thing every day, but you need to do something. If, even if it's the wrong thing you're learning, right? You can recorrect. And I was interviewing a friend earlier today, even, uh, you know, he talked about, man, you know, standing still is a problem. You got to be taking steps in some direction. And, you know, as long as you're moving, even if it's the wrong direction, one day, you know, you've learned something and you can correct pretty quickly. But if you hadn't taken the step, you wouldn't have learned anything, right? So incredible. I love that. And what about, you know, I know there's some things around passive investing that you talk about as well and that passive investors need to know. And I would love your thoughts about that. Yeah. So I think this goes back to being intentional. So mm-hmm. I today am only a passive investor. I've got my single family portfolio that I kind of built up. And then I decided that I wanted to get out of the single family business and more into the multifamily and the syndication. Was it single family rentals that, that provided the financial freedom? Yes. Yep. Okay. And then I decided I had a couple instances in 2020 that maybe we could talk about that kind of put that light bulb in my head that, okay, I need to get into bigger assets because one, this is taking more time to manage these single rentals, even though I had property managers than I expected. And with me doing podcasts, with me doing Ironman, with me working a high demanding job, I just couldn't be intentional at all of those things if I was also thinking about, hey, what's going on with these properties and things like that. So I really try to help listeners and the people that I speak with think about how can you solve the money problem by being a passive investor so that you can be more intentional with your loved ones, with the causes you care about, with your children and things like that. I mean, I can tell you there's many different times where I've sat down for dinner with a friend or a loved one or something like that. And the phone rings and you have to go answer it because you have to solve that money problem, whether it's for your W-2 or not. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of how I started that conversation that journey. Yeah. Yeah. And you had mentioned, and maybe talked about a little bit there, but anything else that happened like 2020 that helped you to say, Hey, I want to move to larger, you know, larger deals, larger multifamily, as opposed to single family. Yeah. I had two instances that happened right back to back months. So I owned a triplex that the middle unit was moving out. And during their move out, they left the faucet just dripping. It was enough dripping to cause a flood in that unit, not flood, but water damage in that unit before we could get in there. And that didn't wipe me out, but it was a $5,000 repair. And for that single part of the triplex, that wiped out the entire cash flow for the entire year. And then I'll be darned, right next next month, I had an HVAC go out in one of my single family units as well, which again, I set aside money as reserves for these things to happen because they're going to happen. But that cost me $6,000, which wiped out the cash flow for that unit for the entire year again. So it was at that point, it's like, wait a minute. When in technology, we talk about single points of failure, not having a single point of failure in your infrastructure and the way you run things. Why am I doing this in my rental portfolio? And so that's what kind of led me down the multifamily journey. Nice. I love those examples because I get questions like that almost weekly, you know, from different investors, different people that are trying to get into this business. And, um, you know, I'm going to do my own thing and manage my own single family. And 
we could talk about that all day. Go ahead. Yeah, let me say a comment on that. So that's fine if that's what you want to do, sure. right? If you're tired of what you do today and your W-2 or however you earn income, and you decide that I would rather manage properties or go do repairs on properties and things like that, that's completely fine. That's just not where I found my highest and best use of my time or where I felt fulfilled and intentional in life. Yeah. Yeah. It's just not as passive as what most people expect it's going to be. Right. And you, you alluded to that as well. Yeah. Speak to team market structure, those things around passive investing that you're focused on when you're looking to invest. Yeah. So when I look at different investments today. So fortunately, because I've done the podcast now and kind of gotten a chance to, to network with a ton of general partners out there, deal flow is really good for me, really healthy. So I'm seeing a ton of passive investments on my side of the equation. And whenever I look at that, I have my first test that I look at. And it's the three-prong test, which is I need to look at the team, the market, and then the structure or the business plan of the opportunity at place. So just to kind of dissect each one of those, the team, the first thing I look for is, has this team done a deal together? What's their background? Do they have a real estate background? Do they have an operations background? Have they gone full cycle together on a deal? If they're doing a value add, has they, have they worked with a contractor before? Have they worked in this market before? I know one of those questions will mark it off my list, but I do like to see that business is tough, things are going to happen, that people have some kind of foundation and relationship, not that they just met on Craigslist 30 minutes ago. The second thing I look for is the market. And I think this is probably more key now than it was five years ago when I first got started investing in real estate. And the reason why I say that is because you could drop a pin anywhere in the country right now, and that real estate market has probably gone up 15 to 20%. What I need to understand or what I look for in that is that organic growth or is it inorganic growth? And what I would call inorganic growth is the Fed printing a bunch of money and just shoving it into the economy. And that money needs to find a space. So when I'm looking at the market, I want to see natural growth. I want to see jobs moving there, population growing, income growing. I want to look at the different sub-markets around it to make sure that it's just not dependent on a specific base or a specific employer in that area. And then the last is really the structure of the business plan. So when I'm looking at that, I look at different types of debt. Is it floating? Is it fixed? Is it agency? Is it non-agency? Do they have mezzanine debt on it? What's the business plan overall? Is it a development? Is it a value add? Is it a turnkey? Are they leasing it up? So those are kind of the three little prongs that I look at to kind of evaluate a deal before going into the underwriting space. No, it's incredible. Just doing that is going to help the past investors so much, right? Just the questions that you just listed out in a couple of minutes there is going to be so helpful. Tell me a couple of things that would kill the deal for you. I would say market. So I think tertiary markets right now have gotten a huge upswing because the Fed printed a bunch of money. And also because people moved from a primary market into a tertiary market. And now, depending on their employer, they may be called back into the office. So I'll use Lake Tahoe as for an example. And I don't know anything about Lake Tahoe, but I know where it sits. It sits right on the border of California and Nevada. And Nevada has more tax-friendly legislation than California. So what did a bunch of people do in 2020? They went to their vacation home in Lake Tahoe and they said, this is where we're going to set up. They bought their primary residence, all that kind of stuff. And they might be working for Apple. Apple right now is saying that people are going to have to come back into the office, at least from a hybrid standpoint, not full-time work from home like an Airbnb did. So what does that mean? That person's going to need to either move back to San Francisco or Cupertino, 
or they're going to have to find employment. Now, does Lake Tahoe have a bustling tech sector like Silicon Valley? No, it doesn't. So are people going to stay there? Are they going to move back? So that's just an example of how I'm kind of looking at markets right now. So that's the way you're hedging against that risk, ultimately, is heavy focus. And we should always have a heavy focus on what market they're in. I like even the order of the things that you laid out there, because I do think like the team, the operator, those things, uh, you know, first and foremost, right? Doesn't matter what the deal looks like or even the market, if, if you can't trust the operator, to say the least. Speak to the process of, you know, how long maybe you're taking when you're determining to invest with someone or not. Are you investing it within a week, a month, or is it like, no, I want to get to know this operator over six months, and this is kind of how I do that? It's usually six months. So I find a way to connect with them, strike up a conversation, sign up for their email list, and then I'm just judging the deals that they're pushing out there. So if someone's pushing out a deal once every seven months, I don't know if that's the type of person that I want to be invested with because maybe they're not fully committed or maybe they don't have the great deal flow that we will need as we kind of go into this next phase of the economy here. And then after that, I typically take a look at the team market and business structure. So are they continually running the same business plan over and over again? Or is it this time it's a value add, this time it's a development, this time it's a lease up, different markets, all that kind of thing. And then the last thing, and probably the most important, I want to make sure I don't freeze over your point about the team. In, in real estate investing as a whole, you don't bet on the horse, you bet on the jockey. And what that means is the team and the operations. So what I don't want to see is that someone slapping their name onto different GP deals over and over and over again and don't have consistency in that. I would rather see somebody say, hey, here's my tribe. Here's who we're running with. Here's our process. Here's the markets we're going after. Here's our business plan. And if I see three or four consistent deals on that, then I start doing the underwriting of the specific deals that are coming by. You mentioned ultimately consistent in the asset classes offerings that they're providing. And I like that thought. I don't know if I've heard anybody say that before as far as like judging, you know, how much deal flow does this team have or do they have? And you talked about potentially, you know, maybe they have a value add deal this time, maybe a development deal next time. How do you see that? You know, is that positive? Is that negative to you? So it depends, right? And that's a terrible answer. But if you're a BlackRock and you're, you know, a multi-trillion dollar hedge fund out there in the real estate space, then you have the team and the capabilities to go run different plays. But if you're a Joe Schmo investor and you've got 4,000 units under management, I think it's too hard to switch those muscles and flex those different muscles. A development deal in Houston looks a lot different than a value-add deal in New York just using those as two examples there. So what I would prefer to see is that somebody have the same consistent blueprint that they're running over and over and over again. And Whitney, that's probably a cause of my older age here that I have this conversation a lot. I'm finding it harder to task switch, to go in between things a lot more as I age. And why should I think that should be any easier when you're dealing with multi-million dollar apartment complexes? Interesting. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's great for any past investor to think through that, right? And question the team, ask the team, the operator about that. Hopefully they have that expertise on their team, right? If they're doing different asset classes. What about, what do you expect us in the real estate market over the next six to 12 months? Or do you have any predictions, you know, as you're looking to invest, you know, passively? I wish I could give you a good answer here, but I don't think anybody knows, right? I think the Fed is tightening right now, which is, I, I feel like a good thing. We have got to control inflation. Inflation hurts the lower class more than it does the wealthier class. So I think that is probably a good move. 
things have been too easy for too long and we need to see a little bit more moving back in the other direction. I think, look, from my perspective, depending on your timeline, real estate is always a good, safe asset class. My timeline is for the rest of my life. My timeline is not for the next six months kind of thing. So what I'm looking for are good operators in good primary markets that are having the organic growth that we talked about and not a random city in Montana that's exploded over COVID and we're not sure what's going to happen. So I think as long as you pick good operators and good properties and good markets and have a long enough time period, then your investment will ultimately go up into the right. That might be different for a listener out there, but that's how I'm viewing it. All right, Matt, a few final questions. What's been your best source for meeting new investors? So we were talking about this before. So I started a podcast back in 2021, in March of 2021. And it was really to have interesting conversations with interesting people that would hopefully add value to the people that I was trying to serve. And the people I was trying to serve at that time were my peer groups. My peer groups were very interested after they watched their equity portfolio take a huge dip in 2020, at the beginning stages of 2020. And potentially some of their peers losing jobs, they were asking me, how did I become financially free? What am I doing in real estate? And so that has been one of the best decisions I've ever made. One, because I get to have conversations like this with folks like you, long-time listener, first-time caller. So it's a great honor and a pleasure to be on the show. But also you get to see the different niches out there. When I first got involved in real estate, I thought it was you either bought turnkey or you did the fix and flip like you see on HGTV. And what I've learned is it is so much more than that. And it might sound ignorant of me, but this is a multi-trillion dollar space just in this United States alone. So as a guy that reads numbers better than he reads words. It's been a fun process to kind of just learn and hear what different folks are doing out there. So podcasting by far has been the best best source of finding new people to talk to, but also connecting with different general partners out there. What, what's some of the most important metrics that you track? I was having this conversation on the podcast the other day. I think return on your intentionality, return on your time is probably the best metric we should be talking about that we don't talk about right now. And what I specifically mean about that is everybody on social media right now plugs how many units they have, what's their assets under management, and all that kind of stuff. But they're not telling you, are they being intentional with their time to pursue the passions that they care about with the people that they love? So your return on your time in the sense of, are you getting the most enjoyment out of it would be the number one thing that I would look at and track. So you mean even for the operator you're looking to invest with, you would like to know that about them, that they're focused on that as well? Yeah, I think so. Cool. What about some daily habits that you are disciplined about that have helped you achieve success or maybe the highest return? I've got a ton, so I'm trying to narrow it down for you. But I think the biggest life hack in the world is waking up early. I don't know why, but when I was 21 years old, I started waking up at 4 a.m. in the morning to get my workouts in and to do a little bit of reading. And that has been the best return on my time I have ever done. Because what I tell people is that four hours that I get from 4 to 8 o'clock is time to invest in myself, pay myself first. And that's before emails are going off, phones are ringing, all that kind of stuff. So I think the best habit I have is waking up earlier before anybody else does. Yeah, no, that's awesome. I could not agree more. It changed my life when I started being consistent about being up early and being intentional with that four hours like you're talking about. No doubt about it. It has changed over time, but so important. Go ahead. I want to touch on that because people will tell me, well, I'm a night owl and I couldn't be a morning person. First of all, no one's a morning person. 
getting up that early I is a was habit. A, yeah. You just got to get into it. You morph into the person that your actions are guiding you to be. And the second thing I would say is like, when people tell me they're a night owl, it's like, don't you understand that you have given to everybody else and every other obligation that you have in your life before you're giving to yourself? It's so hard for me to believe that you are your most productive self after you've given everything else to the world throughout the day. That's what I was just thinking about that. And you hammered it at home. It's like, which time of day do you think you're going to be most productive after you've rested or, you know, the last thing like you're talking about? So important to think through. What about the number one thing that's contributed to your success? Uh, Consistent actions, daily consistent actions. And my coach right now keeps hammering home with me the gap to the gain by Dan Sullivan. And it talks about when you're in the moment, when you're in the thick of it, of being successful or marching towards your goals, you don't look back to think about how much you've accomplished. You're always looking forward. And so I think Ironman has really taught me it's about running the mile you're in and not thinking about anything else. Compare yourself versus your past self, not someone else's today's self. And look, I'm not perfect at that. That is still something I struggle with tremendously. But I think, yeah, consistent actions has been the number one thing that's led me to success. How do you like to give back? So we were chatting about this before. My sister was mentally disabled and she passed away at the age of 39 in 2018. There's an organization in Lynchburg, Virginia called Humankind. And Humankind helped take care of Whitney for 20 years. And so every two weeks out of my paycheck, my company fortunately can set this up they take money and move it to humankind to give as a donation and they match it. And then when I get to the end of the year, I take a look at my real estate profits and I make sure that at least 5% of those go to them as well. So look, it's not enough to change the world, but it's my little part that will hopefully help that organization continue to give back to families like my mine mine got a chance to experience. Yeah. Well, Matt, I appreciate you being willing to share that and help so many others to think through because definitely such a difficult time, no doubt about it. Man, you have used that to motivate yourself and now to help many other other people to be motivated, you know, in, in the right way and encouraging them. But I just appreciate you being transparent with even from the commission check that you lost to financial freedom to 30, you know, at 32, even how you know, some things about your mother and father that helped shape you, right? And then the four steps to achieving anything. I know we're going to highlight all this in the show notes, but you listed many other things. I love it. Just your focus on getting up early as well and the structure and the passive investing, the things you've thought through there. It's helped many of the listeners, whether they are active or passive, you need to be thinking about those things. And hopefully you are expressing those. If you're active, hopefully you're expressing those things to your potential investors, right? We've not always done that well. It is a continual improvement process on all those things that Matt listed there. You know, our whole team is working on those things. So, yeah, I'm grateful again to have had you on the show to meet you, Matt. How can the listeners get in touch with you and learn more about you and your podcast? Absolutely. So the show is called Ice Cream with Investors. And we're on every podcast app from Stitcher to iTunes to Google Podcasts. You can also see icecreamwithinvestors.com. It's a work in progress get going and then get good. So we're working on the website. And then you can find me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest way to reach out to me. Matt Four, based out of Nashville, Tennessee. You'll see my ugly face up there. I would warn... I'd love talking to people. I would warn you though, I love nerding out about investing. So might bend your ear on investing ideas. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.